This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, edited by Sumaya Awad and Brian Bean. Palestine, A Socialist Introduction systematically tackles a number of important aspects of the Palestinian struggle for liberation, contextualizing it in an increasingly polarized world and offering a socialist perspective on how full liberation can be won. Through an internationalist, anti-imperialist lens, this book explores the links between the struggle for freedom in the United States and that in Palestine and beyond. It examines both the historical and contemporary trajectory of the Palestinian solidarity movement in order to glean lessons for today's organizers, and compellingly lays out the argument that, in order to achieve justice in Palestine, the movement has to take up the question of socialism regionally and internationally. Palestine, a Socialist Introduction, edited by Sumaya Awad and Brian Bean. Out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Who governs? For socialists, the answer is often an obvious one. The capitalist class governs, of course. But upon closer inspection, the composition of the ruling class is no more obvious than that of the working class, a class whose disorganization and neoliberal reorganization has been the subject of so much analysis, study, and debate. My guest today is Doug Henwood, the author of Take Me to Your Leader, an extensive analysis of the changing composition of the ruling class published in Jacobin, and which I'll link to in the show notes. Before we get started, this podcast is a listener-supported operation, and the place where you, our listeners, can support us is at patreon.com slash the dig. Our business model is unusual for a podcast. We don't paywall anything because we want, for political reasons, the maximum number of people to listen to each and every episode, regardless of your ability to pay. Instead, we ask those of you who can afford to contribute to do so voluntarily. We also have books, mugs, tote bags to send you as a thank you. If you have been meaning to contribute and you can spare even five bucks a month, please do so at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Take a quick moment and contribute to support the dig. I also have an announcement. The Dig, after four and a half years going strong, is taking a first ever summer sabbatical. This past year has been intense. That's obvious for everyone in various ways, including for me because I took on an extra job's worth of work helping to build Reclaim RI, our post-Bernie organizing operation in Rhode Island. The download data also suggests that many of you, too, have a little less time to listen this summer, especially those listeners here in the U.S. enjoying the first world advantage of a vaccine-induced end to social distancing. So for the rest of the summer, Expect an episode once every two weeks. We will still have lots of great interviews coming soon, and you can always peruse our vast archives at thedigradio.com. And I will be back full strength in September. 
Thank you for bearing with me as I chill and catch up with friends and family a little. Okay, here we go. Doug Henwood is a journalist and broadcaster in Brooklyn. He published The Left Business Observer from 1986 to 2013 and hosts Behind the News, a weekly show originating on KPFA Berkeley that enjoys a vigorous afterlife as a podcast, a podcast that I do listen to and love and that incidentally was the closest thing to a model I had for creating The Dig. Doug's books include Wall Street, How It Works and For Whom, and My Turn, Hillary Clinton Targets the Presidency. He is working on turning Take Me to Your Leader into his fifth book. Doug Henwood, welcome back to The Dig. Oh, it's good to be here. You write, quote, You could say the ruling class is the capitalist class, of course, but what does that mean? CEOs of Fortune 500 companies? Their shareholders to whom they allegedly answer? What about the owner of a chain of franchised auto parts stores in the Midwest? The instant one tries to define the ruling class, all these disparate forces and power blocks appear all over the place. So to start off, how do you define it? Who or what is the ruling class? It's kind of hard, but I would say that it's the upper reaches of the capitalist class, CEOs, top people on Wall Street, but also in conjunction with uh, the senior officers, I guess you could call them, of the political class. That is, elected officials, appointed officials, the kinds of people who are repeatedly appointed to things and go back to the private sector. But you know, also there's this permanent government, you know, which somebody like Henry Kissinger would be an example. So it's this combination of money power with political power that often work together. But there's this kind of simple belief in some quarters that the capitalists just pull the politicians' strings. And I think that's way um, not up to the task. I think there's an awful lot of organization going from the political class to the capitalist class because the capitalists just know how to make money and they don't necessarily really think about politics very much. You point to so many warning signs in recent decades that a ruling class just is not what it used to be at all. The establishment's failure to stop Trump in 2016, the Bush administration's reckless, bloody debacles. But you also say it's like deeper than that. You write, quote, the present configuration of the American ruling class is having a hard time performing the tasks it's supposed to in order to keep the capitalist machine running. For example, you write, it's not investing and it's allowing the basic institutions of society, notably the state, but also instruments of cultural reproduction like universities, to decay. What is a ruling class supposed to do, if that's the right way to phrase it? And then what sort of ruling class are we governed by today? Well, you know, they do need to keep these institutions going. They're just not, it seems. And there's a hostility to reason, to science, to culture that used to be, you know, when the bourgeoisie was on the rise in the 19th century, they used to be very important to its mission of establishing its legitimacy and domination of society. Now they just seem to be uh, dominated by uh, money-making, the uh, accumulation of the maximum amount of money in the shortest period of time. Now, I would think the most urgent problem facing humanity today is, of course, the climate crisis. And I would think that a ruling class that was really up to the task would be addressing it. It might not be addressing it in ways that you or I would like or any of the contributors to uh, the Jacobin Green New Deal series. But it would be addressing in some way that was compatible with the sustainability of life on Earth and also under capitalist principles. I don't necessarily believe that capitalism is 
by definition, incapable of dealing with the climate crisis, as some people believe. I think there's probably imaginable capitalist solutions to the problem, but they just don't even seem to be very interested in it. There's a small wing of particularly the financial elite that is interested in the problem. BlackRock. Yeah. Brian Deese, who went from BlackRock's sustainability portfolio over to uh, the Biden administration, but it's a minority and they're overwhelmed by the more conventional sorts. And we're even seeing it in the government. You know, certainly the Biden administration is showing more interest in climate than many of its predecessors have. And to some degree, I was surprised by the seriousness with which they seem to be taking the climate crisis. But it's just half measures. And then there's just so many obstacles within the opinion-making elite, within the Congress, within the Democratic Party even. It's easy to blame Joe Manchin for all our problems, but there are a lot of Democrats who are very happy to have Manchin taking the heat for their indifference to this you know, existential crisis. So yeah, I think they're just so short-sighted and so driven by the accumulation of money that they can't think of what's going to happen five years from now. You know, there was an f- article in Bloomberg the other day addressing what billionaires are doing to address the threat of climate change in Florida. And the answer is building bigger mansions. That <laughs> seems to be the extent of their interest. They're just, it's, there's just too much money to be made developing more. Yeah, no, it's not surprising that they're not solving the climate crisis via a Green New Deal, but their lack of kind of interest and imagination and even solving it on capitalist terms is what's remarkable. You write, quote, A core concept of Marxism is class struggle, but the tradition exhibits a strange dearth of investigation of the ruling class. Marx's 18th Brumaire is one notable exception, but you're, of course, entirely right. I wanted to do a show on just this, on the composition of the American ruling class and recomposition of it forever. But until you published this essay, I had no clue who to interview, and I was asking around quite a bit. In your essay, you draw on Italian elite theory— And the U.S. does have its own tradition of non-Marxist but left sociologists who study the elite, notably C. Wright Mills and then after him, William Domhoff. But today, there's so little, maybe like almost none. Mike Davis definitely attends to this in Prisoners of the American Dream and other works. But there's so little Marxist or any sort of left work on the American ruling class. Why is that? It's funny. uh, When I started in this project, I asked Bertel Ullman, the Marxist political scientist, what he liked on the topic. And he thought for a moment and said, well, there's really not much. He said, Marxists just don't write about the ruling class. And I asked him why. He said, they think it's obvious. <laughs> and I think, you know, the, the answer is, oh, it's the bourgeoisie. What's the bourgeoisie? It's rich people. It's capitalists. Mm-hmm. And the articulation of economic power and political power is generally an important part of Marxist thought, but there's really not a whole lot of examination of how elite power works in American society. I don't know what it is. I guess there's been a bias in a lot of radical scholarship towards studying from below and not that much interest in elite studies, possibly for some psychological reasons, my obsession, my love-hate relations with the American elite. I've become much more interested in the topic. You know, I spent, what, 35 years looking at and writing about Wall Street and financial power, which is one angle of the ruling class. But you know, even that, there's not a whole lot of Marxist interest in finance. Aside from perhaps some, you know, I'd say somewhat shallow commentary about the financialization of everything. But as to the institutional detail and the configurations of power that finance not merely represents, but even calls into existence, there's not much attention paid to that. Within the capitalist class, there's a whole lot of interest, particularly in the 80s and 90s, has receded somewhat, in how large corporations should be run, what their relations to their shareholders should be, what their responsibilities are. 
that really didn't draw much attention from Marxist or other kinds of radicals. There's not a whole lot about the corporation. There's kind of an anti-corporate tendency in populist literature in the U.S., but you know, not much um, serious attention to looking at how these institutions are run and what the form of the corporation might mean for any kind of future evolution of a socialist economy. Um, there's an awful lot of, let's break up the big banks, break up the corporations. Is that really what we want? Do we really want small as beautiful? Not a lot of thinking about these kinds of topics either. And you know, you've seen this growth now in recent years of greater interest in antitrust among liberals. There's a tendency of, along those lines. In the Biden administration now, you have people like Matt Stoller holding forth about the need to break things up and have more competition. Do we really want more competition? I don't think so. But you know, um, it seems like there's a lot of invocation of formulas, but not much thought behind them. Yeah. And so the left analysis of the ruling class tends to be a little bit flat and static when one needs a sophisticated, subtle analysis of the constantly changing composition and recomposition of all sorts of classes, very much including the ruling class, the class that we want to overthrow. Yeah. I mean, we've seen a lot of attention paid to what's happened to the working class, the increasing diversity of the working class, fissures within the working class, the decline of unions, the relative loss of power of labor versus capital, but not much attention paid to the upper reaches of society. And you know, maybe it's because they're distasteful people and we don't like them. <laughs> but uh, I think that makes them all the more fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. yes, and, and, you know, they have better parties. <laughs> better adorbs, at least. You reject a popular American piece of conventional wisdom known in political science literature as pluralism, that, quote, there is no ruling class, that there are voters in a democracy who may be divided into interest groups, but none are dominant. Obviously, you're right to reject that framework. I also think, though, that pluralism was not just a popular in scholarly literature, but as a popular understanding of how this country works. In reading your piece, it occurred to me that I think that conventional wisdom is mostly dead. I mean, many particularly but not exclusively on the left, think that rich people run the country, which I think is you know closer to the correct answer. The right thinks that we are governed by some narrow subset of cultural elites or else woke capitalists, which is just reframing economic elites as cultural elites in a way that's convenient for the right. And then, of course, many more apocalyptically on the right think that Hollywood pedophiles are in charge. But do you agree that these days most Americans seem to believe that some group or another governs that we do indeed have a ruling class and the debate is now over who it is? Yeah, well, you know, there's a tendency uh, to descend into conspiracy theorizing where it's just a small group of people in a room who plan everything. And, you know, that's not true. It's a much larger group than that. They can't always get together in a room and they really can't plan everything. But there's an insight to that attraction of conspiracy theorizing, which is I don't think anybody believes that this is a democracy anymore. It just it all seems like bullshit. Since probably the mid-60s, it's become ever more discredited to the point where now nobody can believe that. It's just such transparent nonsense driven by the interest of the moneyed. And that sounds like vulgar Marxism, but as my late friend Bob Fitch used to say, vulgar Marxism explains 90% of what goes on in the world. <laughs> you write, quote, nor am I taking seriously conceptions of a ruling class that center on PC-obsessed, organic food-eating urban elites. That set has some influence, especially among the liberal wing of the consciousness industry, but it doesn't shape the political economy. It's an important comment to make. There are obviously leftists who fall into this line of thinking, sometimes in rather politically dangerous ways. But on the right, more consequentially, I think this perceived 
and also real domination of culture by liberal elites has been really key to keeping the right-wing base mobilized. It's the way to nurture the basis sense that they're victims, even as, of course, they exploit our anti-democratic system to exercise political power far out of proportion to their numbers. So what role do liberal cultural elites play in American power? You don't talk a lot about them in the essay. And then what role, by comparison, does the perceived power of liberal elites play in the broader contest for power? Well, you know, they obviously have a role in shaping media coverage and shaping education. One of the things I really don't quite understand now and I really want to get into is what is going on with, you know, I'm putting this in multiple quotes, but, you know, (laughs) woke culture, what the influence of that at elite secondary schools and colleges is now. I mean, the the curriculum at a place like Dalton or Harvard-Westlake is all about uh, race and gender. Dalton being a Tony... New York private school, maybe the toniest? Certainly one of them, but it also has one of the most intellectual reputations of that that crowd. And then Harvard-Westlake in Los Angeles, which um, the inimitable, ineffable Barry Weiss wrote about recently. (laughs) Yeah, it's there. It's an influence. And I can understand why the masses might resent liberal power, because liberals kind of look down their noses at the masses. There's no question about it. They think they're all deplorables, as Hillary Clinton famously said. But these are not the people who run the state. They're not the people who run finance. They're not people who make decisions in the Fortune 500, which are the ones that are the most consequential for people. And I can understand why the right would want to draw attention to that because it draws attention away from the real nature of power, which they're extremely complicit with or puppets of. But I find it distressing when people on the left adopt some of this argument because You know, some of that stuff we dismiss as woke, and I will do that in the privacy of my own home sometimes. (laughs) But, you know, these are real things. I think race and gender and sexuality are really important material political concerns. And I really don't like this tendency of a lot of people to dismiss that as secondary or diversionary or even wrong. These are important things. Even if Dalton and Harvard-Westlake, where you have to pay $55,000 a year to go to school, It's kind of ridiculous that they're concerned with some of these things because it makes it look like they're not really interested in the roots of their material power, but they want to appear righteous and above it all, and not like all those, you know, dirty working class people who are just bigots and all. That I would be critical of, but on the other hand, you know, these are very serious concerns. I really wouldn't want to be part of a movement to dismiss them. You know, you see like Catherine Liu's book in Elites, for example. I read that and I never (laughs) was really clear on who she was talking about. I don't know who these elites are that people like that are really up in arms about. And they're maybe working out some guilt at not being out there doing political work or organizing a union or whatever. Instead, they're in the seminar room. But, you know, I think seminar rooms are important. I think academia is important. And, you know, it's a point I make in the the article. The right takes these things very, very seriously. Charles Koch and his buddies have been um, trying to reshape academia in the right's image. Yeah, the Mercatus Institute at GMU is not a sideshow. No, no. And, you know, they've created all these think tanks, and it's part of the model of the propagation of neoliberal thought and right-wing thought. It's been very hierarchical, but you need these elite institutions and thinkers to develop the ideas, which then get disseminated through think tanks and then through journalism and then through politics. And through powerful policy political networks like ALEC. 
and the State Policy Network. Yeah, I noticed there's something like a little over 50 of these state think tanks funded by um, the Koch and similar networks. And they write bills. Overworked state legislatures don't have to do the work themselves. They just have these, you know, fill in the blanks legislation. But also they take, you know, they're endowing chairs, endowing institutes, essentially trying to create universities in their image. You know, a good bit of GMU is like that. So um, I think we need to be serious about intellectual life um, if we want to fight them. And uh, we're not going to fight the right by just thinking it's all a distraction. Let's turn to the history so we can get into what sort of ruling class we used to have and how we ended up with what we have today. You write, quote, we once had a coherent ruling class, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, WASPs, who more or less owned and ran the United States from its founding through the 1970s. How did a self-conscious WASP elite arise? And then what sort of economic, social, and political institutions guaranteed the reproduction of their power? The European settlers of the U.S. were primarily originally from Britain, to a lesser extent, Germany, which kind of honorary wasps. But they're the ones who really were the initial governing class. But it wasn't until uh, we saw mass immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe that the wasps really came to consciousness as a formation. So in the 1870s and 1880s, as these immigrants were coming in, you saw the WASP class really developing a whole set of institutions and a consciousness around them. And it's also the WASP home base of New England and the Northeast that most, where elites most actively mobilized against this new immigration through groups like the Immigration Restriction League. One doesn't want to romanticize these characters. They're often like racists of the worst sort and very consciously allied with British imperialism. You know, they thought that we were the partners and eventually the heirs to this white man's civilizing mission around the world. They founded prep schools, most importantly Groton in the 1880s. Endicott Peabody, the headmaster of Groton for many decades, really shaped a whole generation. What a name. <laughs> I know, yes. <laughs> Franklin Roosevelt named Endicott Peabody as the second most important influence in his life after his parents. In the 1880s, they developed the Wasp Summer Town, with Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, and these places like that. The prep school, the urban men's club, all these things really came into prominence in that decade, along with you know, a lot of race theory, why they were the superior form of humanity. All this inspired by a mass immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. There was an interesting relation with Jews at this point, because there were some Jewish members of the upper classes, the Guggenheim family, for example. But as there came Eastern European Jewish immigration, the wasps turned on the Jews and kind of expelled them from the elite. The old German Jewish elite. The old German Jewish elite were very uncomfortable about having these disreputable Eastern Europeans. These Ukrainians and Poles. <laughs> Often with bad politics, socialist mm -hmm. politics, and uh, certainly working class outlook on life. So yeah, that's when that wasp consciousness really came to the fore. Then it was this ethic of discipline and austerity. It was not the luxury that we think of with our contemporary ruling class. You know, these were people who lived in uh, very disciplined, modest ways. Sort of Teddy Roosevelt's strenuous life stuff. Yeah, there was this concern that everyone was going soft as industrial civilization was taking us away from the fields and, you know, manly labors. So uh, somebody like Teddy Roosevelt would engage in almost cartoon-like performances of masculinity to counter that creeping softness. Yeah, and then Endicott Peabody and the Groton ethic was very much like that as well. You know, getting up early, working hard, 
going to bed and uh, no sex, no fun, no art, just discipline. It's not easy to be on top. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's, at that point, there are a lot of robber barons who had made a lot of money in the late 19th century who thought that they weren't really civilized enough. So they wanted to send their kids off to Groton to learn how to be civilized, which is an interesting thing. Our current rich don't feel any need to be civilized. They're so confident in themselves and their right to rule the world. They feel no social anxiety about not having the proper manners or the proper education, the proper understanding of their civilization. They just know everything because they're so rich. So much of the ideology of our elite today is about meritocracy. They're there because they earned it. They deserved it. It's a justified return to their great skills. You know, they tell all these stories about themselves. But there's always a lot of anxiety under it. There's an interesting book by uh, Rachel Sherman called Uneasy Street, in which she interviewed a bunch of fairly well-off people in New York, and they're all nervous about losing their status. You know, they might have had 10 or $20 million in the bank, but they're afraid one bout of cancer will wipe them out. That sense of anxiety is a kind of feature of people who don't feel like they were born into it, whereas the old waspy people felt like they were born into their position, and they had a lot more confidence uh, and a lot less anxiety about their social position. Even during the WASP payday, there were other elite blocs, including, of course, the solidly democratic white supremacist South, and then just a huge array of more provincial elites elsewhere. How did these regional capitalists fit in to the big picture of WASP-dominated power for much of the 20th century? And then, as an aside, why weren't Southern elites WASPs, too? There are a lot of them are wasps, just um, by ancestors. But the, yeah, the real root of the kind of power that, uh, or locale of that kind of power I was talking about, was the Northeast. And going into New York, there were some outposts in places like Pittsburgh and Cleveland. But there was this sense of it being a national ruling class. That's one of the things that you saw at the turn of the century was its development of a consciousness of a national ruling class, you know, based in this waspy northeastern establishment with provincial outposts, but we all knew where the headquarters were. The South, though, of course, the South has always been a problem in American life. They lost a war, and uh, they were damaged as a ruling class. You know, they recovered, but they lost the Civil War. They had their property expropriated, which they also, to a large degree, recovered. There's a sense that they're really not proper members of the club. But before the Civil War, the Southern Elites thought they were far more cultured and sophisticated than their Yankee cousins. They thought they were all just a bunch of vulgarians and that the Southern elites entertained better. They had nicer libraries. You know, they had better taste in art and architecture because they were able to have a leisure class in a way that the North wasn't because they, uh, so much of their um, prosperity depended on slave labor. The 1970s upended this entire order. And on the show, we've discussed a million times the neoliberal counteroffensive, particularly the devastating assault on labor. But you're particularly interested in how the crisis and then settlement of those crises in the 1970s, how that drove the recomposition of the ruling class. How did this new order not only, as we all know, remake the system to favor capital over labor, but also to change the very fabric of the capitalist ruling class? Several things happened. One, the growth of Japanese competition, German competition as well, European competition, really undermined a lot of the material base of WASP power, old-line industrial firms. Also, they're very much tied up with the financial markets. Old WASPdom was a 
you would graduate from Yale with maybe a C average, go to work at an investment bank as a bomb salesman, and you would have a comfortable life. But that neat clubby world of the financial markets broke up starting in the mid-1970s. There's a what uh, in Wall Street is known as May Day, May 1st, 1975, when they deregulated commissions. They made financial markets much, much more competitive, investment banking much more competitive. They used to be very fixed price controls, basically, on financial products that got thrown out. And that began the turn of finance from a world that was rooted in the relationship. You might be a business partner of whoever your roommate at St. Paul's was. Whereas now it's just, you know, starting into the 80s, it was whoever could make the most money in the shortest amount of time. And a lot of that money making in the early 1980s was centered around takeover artists, leveraged buyouts of sagging old industrial companies. These buyout engineers, often financed by Drexel Burnham Lambert under Michael Milken, just ravaged O-line corporate America. There was a very famous attack on Gulf oil by... Um, Boone Pickens. In 83. Yeah. One of Boone Pickens' advisors on that takeover attempt turned out it was a longtime banker for Gulf. So that relationship was turned on its head. Ruthless. <laughs> yeah. And that just became the ethic of the new Wall Street, which for decades after the 1929 crash, Wall Street was seen as kind of vestigial and sleepy. The shareholders would collect their dividends, but didn't really interfere much with the management of companies. That all changed starting the late 70s, early 80s, as money managers became much more insistent on jacking up profit rates, breaking labor, outsourcing, you know, offshoring, all the stuff that became very familiar over the last couple of decades. You know, that really began in the early 80s, and that really helped undermine the old WASP order. There's also some internal changes within the WASP order. George Gilder, who comes out of that world, has a very funny passage about how, you know, the first generation makes money, and then, you know, by the third generation, they become artists and hippies. They're not really much interested in the established order or might even a turn on it in a lot of cases. They also screwed up the Vietnam War. I and mean, the Vietnam War was very much a product of that WASP foreign policy elite, which, you know, there was the Bay of Pigs invasion, which that was their disaster. But then, you know, really the Vietnam War was what really did them in. It was just so discrediting and so disastrous that that whole crowd was just finished as, as the dominant force in U.S. foreign policy making. The shareholder revolution is a key part of the story. You're telling it shook up these large publicly owned corporations, the so-called Burley Means corporation. That's two different last names with a hyphen in between it. These were the corporations that had nurtured WASP power, and it was a form of shareholder capitalism where individual wealthy households own most stocks. And it was supposed to be a massive improvement over the Gilded Age robber baron model. You write, quote, in the new industrial state, John Kenneth Galbraith argued that rapacious profit maximization had been replaced by a secure mediocrity and greedy capitalists by a technostructure, that's a key Galbraith term, technostructure, top managers who were well-paid but on nothing like today's scale saw little point in risk-taking. They wanted sales growth and prestige, not the paychecks that would later populate the Forbes 400. Today's paychecks are driven by stock prices. In the 1950s, top executives were paid mostly straight salaries. Shareholders had become vestigial. If they didn't like the performance of firms they held stock in, they'd just sell the shares. No one ever troubled management. Why was corporate America content with this New Deal order settlement? And then how did 
the crises of the 70s and the rise of the shareholder revolution upended all? The 1929 crash and the subsequent depression really discredited Wall Street for a generation. There was a pretty tight regulatory structure imposed on them during the New Deal. It's interesting to read through some of that history. Roosevelt explicitly said he wanted to um, have some kind of private socialism (laughs) to avoid real socialism. So they were going to um, create this kind of comfortable world of very tightly regulated shareholding where the financiers were kept on a short leash. So they didn't really interfere much with the production. And you know, the early post-World War II decades were very prosperous. There was really nothing to worry about. Stock prices would go up. You know, they not like they've been going up in recent decades, but they were going up and you know, the dividends would keep coming. There was no serious competition. Everything was fairly stable. But then in the 70s, economic performance started to deteriorate. We saw the rise of semi-permanent inflation, a deepening bad attitude among the working class. You know, that, that old saying that the, for the working class, the 60s happened in the 1970s. That's when the, the working class started sabotaging assembly line, uh, it's, you know, um, wildcat strikes, blue-collar blues, all that stuff. So there is this sense that things were really falling apart, uh, that they're just not working. Financial markets were doing very badly, reflecting this you know, underlying deterioration in economic performance, but also the changing nature of class relations. The, the bosses felt like they were just losing control. And so the shareholder revolution, which you know, really got going by the second half of the 1970s, but didn't really take off until the 80s, was a way to address all these problems as a form of social and labor discipline that was going to shake up that kind of complacent mediocrity that Galbraith was to some degree celebrating. And to be honest, you know, it was a better deal for labor in a lot of ways. That was the era of, you know, cost plus contracts and cost of living adjustments. The uh, corporate elite was not really militantly anti-labor. They'd come to some sort of understanding. They may not have loved having unions, but they didn't want to destroy them. Then the shareholder revolution, and then on the financial side, accompanied by the Volcker tight money regime from 1979 to 1982, and the Reagan revolution, notably the breaking of the PATCO union, you know, all these things together really transformed that old, comfortable world into the one that we live in today. And we're still you know, living pretty much in the world that was shaped by the 1980s, where now it's just uh, the idea that the stock price is the preeminent uh, guide for what a corporation is all about, at least for a public corporation. You know, that's pretty much sacred principle. And what did the shareholder revolution mean concretely for the composition or recomposition of the ruling class? You write that the transaction replaced the relationship, but did it also just remake who the elite were and how rich they were? For one, that that old world where, you know, the guy with a C average who'd graduate from Yale and get a job as a bond salesman, that disappeared. There are certainly regional brokerage firms where mediocre people can uh, go make a comfortable living. That still exists. But the whole concept of the financier that we think of now is just didn't exist in the 50s and 60s. Uh, there are some takeover artists in the six, late 60s, but it was just not the dominant force in business civilization <laughs> that uh, it became. You know, we also saw the development, particularly in the early 1980s, with the era of high energy prices. Right. There's a change in the geographic picture of capital. As portrayed in the show, Dallas. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oil and metals, you know, inflationary assets, commodities, all that sort of thing became really dominant in the economic picture. And that meant the shift of geographic power to the South and to the West. 
the decline of all those old line industries that depended upon cheap energy in the past. And, you know, the decline of New England and, and New York is the focus of corporate and financial power. Really, there's this whole new class of people who were formed by this, the people who came out of Drexel Burnham. Um, there's that famous book, uh, Brian Burrow, The Barbarians at the Gate, uh, about uh, all the takeover artists of the 80s, cigar chomping, vulgar guys who uh, were proud of their vulgarity and uh, upsetting the apple cart. The cultural politics at that moment were interesting. There was a way in which you could have divided loyalties. You could understand how the old corporate class might want to retain a stable world. It'd be better for most people if capitalism were not in constant turmoil, if uh, constant restructuring were not the way corporations did business, uh, if the, you know, the assault on labor were not so fiendish as it turned out to be. On the other hand, you know, there was a resentment of established power. There's a kind of celebration of the populist revolt by these takeover artists financed with borrowed money and being really, really reckless. So it was, it was just interesting in that cultural moment of this class transition. Boone Pickens, in his memoir, tells the story of a club in Pittsburgh where the CEOs would go out hunting. The handlers would feed the birds salt pills, then release them. The birds would get very thirsty and head straight down to the pond where the, um, the CEOs could shoot them easily. To Pickens, that was the image that captured the nature of corporate life in those days. It was just It was just too easy, and they were lazy and complacent and flabby, and they needed to be shaken up by the likes of him. Yeah, e Elon Musk, of course, isn't a Wall Street guy, but it's impossible to imagine someone like Elon Musk existing had the shareholder revolution just this general corporate counteroffensive of the 70s and 80s, if that hadn't just overturned the pre-existing order. The pre-existing order did not have space for someone like him. No, there were no celebrity businessmen to speak of. There were no people like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or uh, Richard Branson or any of these characters who want to shoot themselves into space. <laughs> the whole notion of the celebrity entrepreneur, there was actually a rehabilitation of the word entrepreneur too. Weirdly, Keynes used that term in a lot of in the general theory. I guess he didn't want to say capitalist because he didn't want to sound anti-capitalist. But that word went out of fashion until the early 80s when you started hearing about entrepreneurship all over again. So the, you know, the lone wolf hero of accumulation was lionized by the broader society in ways that we hadn't seen since the 1920s and you know, going backward to the 1890s. It was a remarkable transition. The shareholder revolution of the 1980s was supposed to make the passive investor a thing of the past. No longer would management run companies as private fiefdoms with little outside supervision. They'd be disciplined by activist investors in real-time report cards provided by stock prices. That was the case for quite a while. But the intra-class peace treaty after the shareholder revolution has brought back several aspects of that old world. Two are especially important. The growth of index funds and the explosion in stock buybacks through which corporations have shoveled trillions of dollars into their shareholders' pockets. What are index funds and stock buybacks? And then what does it mean that the shareholder revolution ironically created a system that is as insulated from shareholder pressure as ever. Almost no one can beat the stock market averages. Unless you're George Soros or Stanley Druckenmiller or somebody like that. So what that means is it makes the most sense just to try to mimic those averages. So as a result of this financial theory, um, it became really hard to justify paying a lot of money to money managers to try to beat the averages when it was virtually certain that they wouldn't be able to do it. 
There were some exceptions. The uh, manager of the Yale Endowment, David Swenson, was one of the pioneers of getting institutional money into private equity and things like that. He did very well, uh, made a lot of money for Yale. And for himself. And for himself, no doubt, yes, uh, of course. But most other entities that try to match this couldn't do it. And grossly, an awful lot of public pension funds have been heavily invested in private equity, which generally operates against the interests of labor. So to have money managed in the name and interest of the working class used to finance a very anti-working class agenda. CalPERS is a case in point. California Public Employees Retirement System was one of the leaders of the shareholder revolutions in the 90s. The New York City pension system is also very deeply invested in a lot of private equity, Blackstone and such. But became more and more obvious to everyone that it's really hard to beat the averages. Most of these private equity funds, because the managers take out so much in the way of fees, their general fee structure is 2% of assets under management plus 20% of the profits. So if you're skimming that much off the top, it's really, really hard to beat the averages. So why pay all that money for inferior results? So a lot of people have been, over the last couple of decades, putting more and more money into uh, funds that are meant to man match, say, the Standard & Poor's 500 index, that's the most popular one. So Vanguard and BlackRock and State Street, the three big purveyors of index funds, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers now, but they control, I don't know, 10 or 20% of U.S. equities. But they don't get involved in management, and they can't sell the stock. You know, the stock market is supposed to be a real-time report card on how well management is doing. If the company is not doing well, investors sell it, the price goes down and say, hey, something's wrong here, let's do something. But if all these index funds are just bound to hold the stock because it's part of the index and they have to hold the stock in the proportion that they are in the indexes, none of that report card aspect of the stock market is happening. But also, there's no interest in any of these institutional money managers in doing anything to lobby management to be more effective, to run the company more profitably? Why spend any time or effort or money on lobbying corporate management when you're not going to get any gain yourself? It's going to go to everyone. It raises your fees, and the whole point of index fund is to keep the fees down. So, you know, we had this evolution of corporate governance from this very activist phase in the 80s and 90s when first you had these takeover artists in the 80s, then you had pension funds like CalPERS in the 90s drawing up hit lists of underperforming companies and demanding they, they clean up their act. All that kind of disappeared as we entered the 2000s. And one of the things, very dramatic things that uh, changed the nature of corporate life was that in 1982, the SEC legalized the practice of corporations buying their own stock. It used to be dismissed as or, or, or banned as something that looked manipulative and self-dealing. But uh, the SEC, under John Shad, who was um, a former Wall Street guy that Reagan appointed to run the SEC, Shad, it was said that he'd bet on anything. He would bet on two cockroaches crossing the room, which would reach the other side of the room first. He was like, yeah, this purely speculative mind. They legalized this practice of corporations buying their own stock to boost its price. So corporate managers who are paid in stock, you know, oh, let's use this corporate treasury money to buy the stock and boost its price. It'll keep outside shareholders happy and it'll make me richer. So if you look at the flow of corporate money over the last 40 years, it's gone from the stock market used to be a minor source of funding for corporations that every now and then issue some stock and do whatever they want to do a takeover. Or... Yeah. Acquire capital to invest in production. <laughs> yeah. Like normal stuff, what the stock market is supposed to do, uh, although it really does. 
But now that's all disappeared. Like they just between takeovers, which retire stock and all these buybacks, trillions of stock, dollars of stock have disappeared. There are times when the buybacks exceed the level of corporate investment. Going into the pandemic crisis, Boeing and some of the major airlines were so cash depleted because of all their buybacks that they needed a federal bailout. A lot of companies were even borrowing money to buy their own stock, not borrowing money to expand or do something that would actually generate a return, which you know you could then rationally service the debt with. No, they're borrowing money to buy the stock to boost its price. So we have index funds, which mean the stock market plays almost no role in corporate governance or a declining role in corporate governance. And this growth in buybacks, which is just an enormous amount of money that goes from corporate treasuries into shareholders' pockets. It's a giant racket of a different sort. You know, it's the uh, the old days, you know, the 50s and 60s, the days of uh, the technostructure and planned mediocrity. It was a little more egalitarian because some of the bounty was shared with the working class. Now, of course, it's just all for the big guys. We could squeeze the working class as much as possible, but uh, just pamper the shareholders. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. Verso just launched a new subscription service for readers to get ebooks and discounts every month. When you become a member of the Verso Book Club, you receive all of Verso's new ebooks every month, as well as one or more new books in the mail, plus 50% off all Verso books as long as you're a subscriber. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, all member tiers are now at a discount of 50%. Choose between three membership tiers. The Verso Reader tier is a digital subscription for every new Verso ebook each month. Verso Subscriber for one book sent to you in the mail every month and all Verso ebooks. And Verso Comrade for two to three books sent to you by mail every month, plus all Verso ebooks. To celebrate Verso's 50th anniversary, each option is 50% off for your first three months. At this momentous time for global politics, Verso will bring you radical voices that challenge capitalism, racism, and patriarchy, debate the future of the planet, and work towards real political change. Sign up for the Verso Book Club at versobooks.com slash book club. That's versobooks.com slash book club. You identify another major shift long underway to various forms of private ownership, something that's more in sync with the Gilded Age than with the ethos of the shareholder revolution. One of them is private equity, and another is privately held corporations. You write, quote, Recent decades have seen another throwback to 19th century models, an increasing prominence for the owners of very profitable private firms. A study of U.S. tax records, Capitalists in the 21st Century, by economist Matthew Smith and colleagues, finds that a large portion of the upper ranks, just over half of the proverbial 1%, is populated by the owners of closely held firms rather than the public company CEOs who get so much of the press. The form has grown sharply over the decades. Its share of total business income 
rose from 10% in the mid-1980s to 35% in recent years. Smith & Company continue, quote, Typical firms owned by the top 1% to 0.1% are single establishment firms in professional services, e.g. consultants, lawyers, specialty tradespeople, or health services, e.g. physicians, dentists. A typical firm owned by the top 0.1% is a regional business with $20 million in sales and 100 employees, such as an auto dealer, beverage distributor, or a large law firm. What accounts for such firms occupying such a massive and growing share of the economy in recent decades? And what does that ascendance of privately derived wealth mean for the composition of the ruling class? There are a couple of things going on there, and I really don't quite understand why they've grown to be so profitable because that form has always been around. We've had car dealers around for a long time, and we've had law firms around for a long time. But just like everyone else at the top end, they just make much more money than they used to. Uh, you, know, you go back in the 1950s, you look at Rick Perlstein's book about uh, the emergence of the right, that kind of provincial petty bourgeoisie was really the funders uh, and base for a lot of right-wing politics. But they just weren't that numerous or that rich compared to where they are now. Yeah, you note that Senator Robert Taft, the Ohio Republican, after he lost to Eisenhower in 52, complained, quote, every Republican candidate for president since 1936 has been nominated by the Chase National Bank. Well, there's also this habit, um, every Republican, either presidential or vice presidential candidate, I think they alternated almost, had to be an old lion wasp. But Goldwater was the scion of a regional department store chain. Yeah, I quote in that piece a funny story about some quartz or something countertop magnet in suburban Minneapolis who uh, held a fundraising party for Trump. Minneapolis is not a backwater by any means, but, you know, that kind – he's certainly a backwater as a capitalist. He's not something anybody's ever heard of. That formation was a very important part of the Trump business coalition. Yeah, yeah, that formation is important, but also there's – the growth of a whole bunch of larger private companies, a lot of them in the Coke network, that they don't even want to have to deal with outside shareholders, much less governments telling them what to do. And, and there's, I think, a very important part of the right-wing business constituency is this kind of either very large private corporation or this kind of regional petty bourgeoisie. I cited a piece about um, somebody from Yakima, Washington, wrote about the elite of his hometown. You know, Yakima, Washington is a backwater, I guess. No, I hope nobody in Yakima takes uh, offense at that, but it's not exactly the heart of the cosmopolitan um, elite. You know, he says they run local businesses, car dealerships or law firms. It's the part of Washington where they grow a lot of fruit, not the snazzy part around Seattle, but, you know, the fruit part of Western Washington, where some of these rich folks service the fruit industry. You know, various sorts of vendors of various sorts or, or service accountants or lawyers or whatever. And they amount to this local elite that um, is very Republican. I looked at the uh, political contributions of Yakima compared to Seattle. Uh, you know, Seattle, you know, it's a pretty rich town, gave to Democrats mostly, overwhelmingly Democrats, you know, corporate Democrats, of course, whereas a lot of the elites of Yakima are right-wing Republicans. So that I think it's important to look at the class composition of political tendencies. We see um, a lot of the base of the right is in these kinds of privately owned businesses. And a lot of the Koch network consists of these sorts. You know, it's also some of the private equity guys, the hedge fund guys. Stephen Cohen, Paul Singer, and Robert Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca. 
Yeah, these are all people who made a lot of money either in um, hedge funding or private equity, and they give a lot of money to the right. It's not like Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan, you know, the the established banks, which tend to be much more you know centrist. Often there are a lot of a lot of Democrats, certainly a lot of Democrats around Goldman Sachs, but the hedge fund world is not much like that. These guys think of themselves as lone you know gunslingers upsetting the established order, you know, that quote from Emerson, I'm an endless seeker with no past at my back. I unsettle all things. That's the ethic of these characters. But if you're a large public corporation, you have to some degree to engage with the public. You have a lot of shareholders you have to deal with. You're a much more political figure or social figure than a lot of these gunslingers are. Is there a a material basis to the ideological divergence aside from the shareholder discipline? Because in terms of the past political divergence between commanding heights versus provincial capitalists, you write that the problem wasn't merely ideological. You write, quote, the business branch of that splinter group had a material problem with the Eisenhower era settlement. General Motors may have preferred life without the UAW, but it could afford to pay union rates, especially in exchange for labor peace. Smaller fries couldn't. They were caught in the petite bourgeoisie's classic position, squeezed by big labor and big capital. Their freedom was under siege, and they reacted by funding a right-wing insurgency. The John Birch Society was founded in 1958 by the retired CEO of a Massachusetts-based candy company, Robert Welch, who'd made a fortune off lollipops and junior mints. Welch was rich, but he was no Rockefeller or Mellon. Are there similar sorts of dynamics driving political differences between different sorts of capitalists today? There's a big material fissure based on the nature of the industry. For example, Koch and a lot of his associates are in the carbon business. They just create enormous amounts of pollution. Whereas, you know, somebody like BlackRock or Jamie Dimon can afford to be a little more high-minded because they're not out there like directly pumping carbon at the atmosphere. They're diversified across the entire economy. Yeah. And obviously, J.P. Morgan um, et al. have a lot of money invested in carbon assets. But they can take the long view and say, you know, we can understand that carbon's not going to be around forever and we have to start making plans for a post-carbon world. Even to some degree, the larger oil companies can do that, although a lot of that is just PR. But, you know, somebody like Coke Industries has nothing else. Dirt is their most important product. That's, I think, an important fissure. And a very important part of the Republican constituency are those dirty industries. It used to be a low-wage industries as well. There was a big split between high-wage and low-wage. Thomas Ferguson has written about this, that a lot of the high-wage capital-intensive industries more or less supported the New Deal in the 1930s and had some longer view of things than um, the uh, low-wage, the retail sector, for example. Now, the retail sector is still very Republican. And you're likely to find more Democrats in some of the higher wage sectors, even finance. Interestingly, um, you know, some of the historically Jewish firms on Wall Street, like Goldman, have been a very important Democratic constituency because they weren't, they didn't feel welcome in the Republican Party historically. But there's a little more openness to uh, some degree, you know, of infrastructure spending, social spending, that sort of thing. When Mario Cuomo was thinking of running for president in 1988. Uh, He put together a a commission to advise him on the state of the economy. The chapter on urban poverty was the lead author was credited to be Robert Rubin, ex of Goldman Sachs and of the Clinton administration, former co-chair of Goldman Sachs, was deeply concerned about urban poverty, whereas 
some hedge fund guy wouldn't give a damn about urban poverty. You write that, quote, the board of the Cato Institute, despite its ties to the Coke world, is heavy with second tier and third tier capitalists. The chair of something called Tamco Building Products, a Missouri-based firm, a managing director with Susquehanna International Group, a money management firm based in Ballackinwood, Pennsylvania, and the former owner of the Tennessee-based Young Radiator Company. Coke aside, it's light on seriously elite connections. But then you write, quote, contrast this with the centrist Brookings Institution, whose board includes ambassadors from Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank, TD Bank, Duke Energy, and Young and Rubicam. Its top funders include the Gates Foundation, the Hewlett Foundation, the Carnegie Corporation, the Rockefeller Foundation, Comcast, Google, J.P. Morgan Chase, Chevron, ExxonMobil, Shell, Time Warner, Toyota, AIG, and the government of Japan, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates, and even the libertarian would-be secessionist Peter Thiel, who, like any big investor, knows the importance of diversification. Or take the Clintonite Dems' favorite think tank, the Center for American Progress, which has a business alliance price of admission $100,000. That includes Comcast, Walmart, GM, GE, and Boeing. It's remarkable the divergence between where conventional capitalists see their political allegiance and where these privately held wealth figures do. One interesting thing about this is that the Cato crowd is very organized and um, ideologically motivated. Where it's really hard to say what the corporate Brookings crowd is interested in. They have no agenda. Lee Drutman, I quote his book on the history of lobbying, and I quote an interview I did with him, that to try to break inflation, break labor, deregulate everything. They had a common agenda that affected the entire big capitalist class. They pretty much got everything they wanted by 1983 or 1984, and they kind of disbanded as an organized force. This is after the founding of the Business Roundtable in, I think, 1973. 73, 74. And curiously, that was done in the urging of uh, Treasury Secretary John Connolly, the point I made earlier about how the capitalists sometimes have to be organized by the political class. You know, that's a support for that argument because until the Business Roundtable was founded, there had been no large organization of big CEOs of that sort. They came into existence in the 1970s, and uh, 10 years later, they figured that their agenda had been pretty much accomplished. The Business Roundtable still exists, but it's just not the potent political force it was um, 40 years ago. Whereas the Cato people and Koch and all these characters have a really serious agenda that they push at. So you have on the one hand, the big capitalists who only care about their own sectoral interests, tax breaks for their particular industry, for example, that's the dearest thing to their hearts. But they don't have a broader political agenda the way uh, somebody like Charles Koch does or you know, the Alec crowd or any of these characters. And it was very interesting to watch the early Trump years, you know, because big capitalists really were not very high on Trump. They favored Hillary. They thought that Trump is an irresponsible and dangerous character. But as soon as he came into office, cut their taxes and deregulated everything and the stock market took off, they were happy. So they didn't care about all the other insane stuff he was doing as long as uh, the stock price was going up and um, their, their taxes were going down and regulations were disappearing. That's all they cared about. It was very much unlike the mobilization against Eisenhower in the 1950s with the right was was pushing. And, you know, I imagine, I mean, I haven't really seen that much coming out of the right, uh, against, specifically against Biden yet, except the culture war stuff that you see on Fox. But uh, I'm sure they have, uh, they're busily at work in their secret meeting rooms. But uh, you know, um, 
they really have a politics, whereas the mainstream of corporate America doesn't seem to in the same way. One thing we haven't discussed is the tech ruling class. Where do they fit into all of this? That's a good question. I have to give that much more thought. Certainly, a lot of them are libertarian, you know, the, the likes of Peter Thiel. They had, until fairly recently, not been that involved in politics. Over the last few years, they've gotten much more in, involved in politics. They're mostly contemptuous of politics for, for years and years. They just thought it was the realm of hacks, and they were doing the important work by developing better ways of living through technology. But there's certainly a substantial portion of tech was kind of pro-Clinton Democrat. There's a funny bit in Michael Wolf's first book about Trump. The Fire and the Fury. Yeah, he has, he has a transcript of a conversation between Rupert Murdoch and Trump. Trump calls him up and said oh, he had just met with a bunch of Silicon Valley people. Trump said, they need my help. And Murdoch said, what are you talking about? They were doing great under Obama. They had Obama in their pocket. What do you What do you mean? He said, well, they need some help on the uh, the H-1B visas. Murdoch says, well, you know, how's he, how are you going to reconcile that with your anti-immigrant stance? And Trump says, well, I don't know. I'll figure it out. And then some Murdoch hangs up the phone and says, what a fucking idiot. But yeah, I think there's that sense that tech was comfortable with a lot of the Clinton and Obama style of Democrats. Not always necessarily so comfortable with the nativist yahoos in the Republican Party. And they certainly like uh, government spending on R&D, which subsidizes a lot of their costs of doing business. The tech industry as we know it would not exist had it not been for decades of Pentagon spending. And uh, they just want to keep the government uh, spigot running. Is one big part of the changes you're describing that there just didn't used to be so many people rich enough to individually have such a huge impact. You write, quote, it's hard to believe now, but when Forbes compiled its first list of the 400 richest Americans in 1982, there were just over a dozen billionaires among them, and the minimum price of entry was $100 million, or $270 million in 2020 dollars. Oil and real estate tycoons were prominent among them. Now, tech and finance dominate the list and the fortunes are far larger. The minimum price of entry in 2020 was $2.1 billion. The five richest 2020 members were worth $520 billion. In 1982, the top five were worth $11 billion, or $26 billion in current dollars. Has the growing number of just extremely rich people created a novel situation whereby a relatively small number of individuals with perhaps idiosyncratic reactionary ideologies like the Kochs, where they can just exercise a ton of power as they see fit, independent from the more diffusely institutional logics that historically governed much of American capitalism? This is true not only at the national or even the international level, but at the local level. A lot of like local billionaires really dominate their state's politics. So a character like Art Pope in North Carolina who uh, made billions off a chain of discount stores for poor people. <laughs> Art Pope has a material interest in creating more poor people because they patronize his stores. And he has been financing a lot of the reactionary agenda in North Carolina. And North Carolina, it's not a blue state by any means, but it is not a reactionary state. It's not South Carolina, which is one of the most reactionary states in the country. It, is, it has very distinguished universities, Research Triangle Park, cultural uh, life. But somebody like Art Pope, with all his money, 
can fund gerrymandering and fund laws designed to promote the right-wing agenda. There were no art popes 40, 50 years ago, or at least on the scale of somebody like him. And you can reproduce that any number of places around the country, whether it's the local elite in Yakima that I was talking about earlier, or the uh, the court's countertop magnet in, uh, in suburban Minneapolis. Uh, they just have so much to spend, and they're willing to spend it. And this is something I'd really want to look into more, too. They feel so persecuted. Like, these folks have never had it so good. Maybe, you know, there's a little more hostility now than there was to them some years ago. But really, politically, they're really safe. They don't have to pay any taxes. You know, it's that ProPublica leak showed us they really pay less in taxes than you or I do. But they, they still feel so besieged. Like, I guess it's a guilty conscience, the sense that uh, they're getting away with murder and that a time now that uh, the angry masses are going to come slit their throats. But it's a weird sense of aggrievement, which leads them to um, fund all these crazy politicians to um, push this agenda even further. You write that the, quote, Aravistes held a mix of envy and contempt for the old establishment resenting its prestige while lamenting its decadence. It's curious how that view still pervades the American right, even though that old establishment is considerably reduced. That insight really helped me make sense of this anti-elite politics that's weirdly run by very rich, if sometimes somewhat provincial figures. Do you think that this sort of, how is this sort of lumpen capitalist resentment melded with and maybe even weirdly come to stand in for broader resentments fueling reactionary right-wing American politics across across other classes as well, the middle and working classes too. Yeah, you know, despite their wealth, they seem to feel bad, like they're not taken seriously enough or they're not cultured and that uh, the culture looked down on them, which is, of course, correct to some degree. I looked down on them. There's this combination of being materially secure, politically secure, at the same time they feel so culturally insecure, produces a very volatile mix of reactionary politics. Uh, and it's a way, of course, of manipulating the masses into supporting their agenda. This is one of the things that Trump was so brilliant at. Trump was able to take the fact that the Manhattan elite never accepted him and he resented them for it because he was a Bulgarian from Queens. But he was able to transfer his personal resentment into something that a whole bunch of marginalized people across the country could identify with. And like I said earlier, I think people exaggerate the degree of working classness of that base. It's a much more regional petty bourgeoisie, not displaced machinists on the banks of the Great Lakes. This is something that the right is just hammering away at now. They understand that the rest of their agenda is not popular. You know, they can't sell tax cuts for rich people. A lot of people are very happy to get $1,400 checks in the mail, even if they weren't the 2000 they were expecting. They got their $1,400 checks. There's talk of a child allowance coming in, you know, just. And a lot of the Biden agenda is fairly popular. So they can't really fight it on those grounds. So they have to work all these cultural resentments. And again, I don't want to dismiss the cultural sphere as being of somehow secondary importance. That stuff is really important. But I'm sad to say, it's hard to find people who are economically on the left who are also, or at least in a lot of cases, who um, would also support what I consider you know, a liberatory cultural agenda. So they're able to peel people away from that any kind of economic agenda by working on these cultural resentments. Now, I guess we're, we're still somewhat in the world that Tom Frank wrote about 
with uh, the use of cultural resentment to recruit people for an agenda that would not otherwise be popular. Is this ascendant class of private firm derived wealthy people that we're talking about that's powered the right wing? Is that also where much of the high end liberal elite today come from? Not so much the countertop moguls, maybe, though maybe there's a lib elite countertop mogul out there, but more extremely highly compensated lawyers and, and other professionals? Oh, yeah, that's absolutely the case. Uh, you know, if you go back into the progressive era, too, a lot of the the base um, for the progressive uh, era politicians were uh, the professional class that was resenting all the new capitalists. They thought they were Bulgarians. And what we needed were nice, civilized experts to run things. The early Nation magazine or the early 20th century Nation magazine very much reflected that. The nation in its day, in the in the 1920s editorialized in favor of chain stores. There was this big movement, especially in the rural South, against chain stores. And the nation at those times was contemptuous of the rejection of what they considered economic evolution, which is just like you know Darwinian evolution. That lives on today. There's a, a certain resentment of economic elites in a professional class uh, that uh, lawyers, academics, creative sorts, Hollywood types, advertising people. That, that's a lot of the democratic elite. A lot of the liberal elite consists of, of that, plus some finance people like George Soros. But, you know, as I was saying earlier, that the, the right is so organizationally and ideologically disciplined compared with the liberal side. About 10, 15 years ago, the Democracy Alliance, which is mm -hmm. supposed to be a liberal answer um, to the Koch network. Sort of Soros-convened alliance of rich, very rich liberals. They all are encouraged to give to whomever they want to. There's no like focus of personnel or institutions or agenda or anything. It's all like, do your own thing, man. And not with the kind of like Leninist discipline that Coke has. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. If you go back into the 1950s, when the right was first starting to take over the Republican Party, a lot of the people involved in that were alums of Trotskyist and communist movements of the 30s. And they brought with them a high degree of ideological and organizational discipline, which is one of the things that enabled them to take the long view. They realized it was a task of decades and uh, were able to uh, accomplish the task precisely because of that organizational and ideological discipline. They even like took on, they went to a meeting, they would sit themselves in the crowd in a pattern that they learned during their communist days of how to dominate a meeting. I think there's some kind of diamond-shaped thing that they decided was the, the best way to do this. But yeah, they carried a kind of Bolshevism forward in the service of capital, whereas the liberals are just all too loosey-goosey and really are just much more ineffectual. You write, quote, In the 1980s, the Democratic Leadership Council, DLC, led by the likes of Bill Clinton, aimed to reinvent the Democratic Party for the neoliberal era by purging it of progressive forces left over from the 1960s and 70s. The goal was to make it friendly to Wall Street and the Pentagon while dropping the civil rights and tree-hugger talk, and it was largely successful as the party found popular support among professionals in the nicer suburbs. I think that's a really important insight, especially when people on the left sort of mistakenly blame any sort of emphasis on racial or gender justice or anything like that on the woke liberal PMC, because this is the actual sordid history of the in this house, we believe liberalism that, you know, today elite professionals are seen by both the right and some on the left is what drives Democrats towards this neoliberal 
wokeness. But what what do we learn when we understand that the origins of the Democratic turn towards these affluent professionals was was thoroughly and explicitly reactionary, specifically on social issues? Yeah, there's a really good book on this topic by Lily Geismer, Mm -hmm. uh, in which she studied five towns north of Boston. Don't blame us. Yes, don't blame us. It's really a a very interesting story, but it is this story of how these kinds of elite suburbs and the the, the people who populated these things thought of themselves as very different from the boring gray flannel suit types or the um, or the Levittown suburbs of the fifties and sixties. They you know we're we're MIT professors. You know we really know best. They became the root of a lot of this transformation of the Democratic Party. As the Democratic Party was dropping the old urban working class and replacing it with these sorts of professionals, it took on a very different cast. Geiser tells the story of, I think it was uh, Lexington, where they were very aggressive about passing fair housing legislation. They wouldn't discriminate. So they wanted to make sure that black people were just as welcome in uh, Lexington as white people were. Problem was that very few black people had the money to buy a house in Lexington. So it was just all purely symbolic. You know, that's emblematic of the kind of liberalism, you know, the so-called woke liberalism, you know, materially. Money did the work of making sure that just the right kind of people would enter their suburbs um, and they wouldn't have to worry about uh, vulgarians from the city coming in and taking over. The problem isn't that these people focus on things like race and gender. It's that they do so in a revealingly idealized and always dematerialized way. Yeah. I mean, they don't want to like think about why they live in Lexington and other people don't. <laughs> that, that, that would make them uncomfortable. Or if they do think about that, it's because they worked so hard and did all the right things and went to the right schools and uh, you know, their social status is a reward for all their virtue and labor. They don't really want to think about um, the social structures that uh, reproduce their privilege. Has the diverse, There has been, though, some diversification of the traditional corporate elite. Has that meaningfully affected the composition of the ruling class and also maybe shaped this lumpen billionaire insurgency to its right? Places like Yale made a conscious effort starting in the 1970s to bring in people who are not third generation legacies and uh, tried to recruit people from public high schools. But, you know, if you look at the makeup of the Yale student body today, it's overwhelmingly people from you know, households with six figure incomes. I think. Piketty says in Capital in the 21st Century that the average Harvard undergraduate's family um, has a household income of $300,000. So, you know, there's you can certainly bring in a different uh, set of personnel, different from the old legacy George Bush-type wasps, but you're still relying mostly on money. The Yale Alumni Magazine had a cover several years ago of someone picking a fruit tree and the headline was something like Beyond the Low-Hanging Fruit. And they're, they're complaining that they could just find a certain limited number of kids from poor backgrounds to recruit to Yale, and they just couldn't get beyond that low-hanging fruit. So yeah, there's this effort consciously to diversify, but it's of, of limited success. The corporate you know, establishment is still overwhelmingly white, pretty much male. Um, we've seen, you know, a certain degree of of diversification of the professions, the political class is certainly more diverse than it used to be. That's probably the most diverse uh, subset of the higher reaches of society. But, uh, you know, they've got a way to go, for sure. And it's partly because, you know, the reproduction of of privilege is across generations. Brookings had a study out the other day 
that almost all of the families that are under the poverty line for three generations in a row are black. There are almost no white people whose families are under the poverty line for three generations in a row. So, you know, that kind of thing is really hard to do much about without a major, major social reconstruction, which is impossible to imagine in uh, the current political environment. This is a very, very long essay, and yet it will represent just a small part of your next book project. What are some of the big questions about our ruling class that you haven't yet answered? I want to talk more about the tech people. I want to talk more about diversity and how much diversification of the elites there has been. I want to look more into the role of women, which is a very interesting story. Upper-class women in the WASP days were very much the social managers. They handled the social reproduction of the class. They helped create a national ruling class um, through like, inviting people to parties. What's happened now that women are more likely to be working than they are to be handling these you know, tasks of social reproduction? It's changed the nature of philanthropy. And that's another thing I want to look at more closely, philanthropy. McGeorge Bundy, after he left the Johnson administration, uh, ran the Ford Foundation for 10 years, um, had a lot to do with funding diversity at Ford. Um, what was he thinking? What are the, the roles of the old philanthropies versus a lot of the new philanthropies? You know, somebody like Mackenzie Scott is an interesting character. She's giving away money in ways very unlike her class predecessors. And then also much more of an international dimension. Right, the, um, the globalization of capital and also the capitalist class. Yeah, I mean, the ruling class of old, the, the WASPy ruling class, really shaped the modern world. Uh, and uh, there was a cross-Atlantic relation with the British ruling class. Yeah, where are they now? What are their ties? How do they think about their role globally? How do they think about their role nationally even? So those are some of the things I really want to look at. It's a big task. Well, I look forward to reading it. I wish I could say I look forward to writing it. I'll give it a shot. That would be a lie. <laughs> Doug Kenwood, thank you very much. Oh, wait. Thank you. Doug Henwood is a journalist and broadcaster in Brooklyn and the host of Behind the News, a weekly podcast. His books include Wall Street, How It Works and For Whom, and My Turn, Hillary Clinton Targets the Presidency. He is working on turning Take Me to Your Leader into his fifth book. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that what kept the two factions apart was not any so-called principles. It was their material conditions of existence, two different kinds of property. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, but this episode was edited and produced by John Hanrahan. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce The Dig to new listeners. So does, more importantly, telling friends, family, why you listen to the show, why they should too. Please do make propaganda for us and please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. 